With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media it is early in the morning and um i'm very excited to have a return guest uh to talk about his new book we'll talk about that in a second uh paul miller uh some of you may remember is a professor at georgetown but he's had all sorts of uh cool positions in government with like fancy kind of foreign policy and intelligence kind of verbiage going with them. I won't get into details because I can't remember them. I just remember that they're cool. Um, whenever I talk to people like Paul or, or frankly, Klon or my wife who worked for uh, John Ashcroft during the, uh, the whole beginning of the war on terror stuff after 9-11, I always have this sort of unarticulable resentment because I know they know cool stuff that they won't tell me. Um, but fortunately, uh, we don't have to get into all of that today. Um, instead, we're going to get into his book, uh, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And there's even a forward by the Dispatch's own David French. Paul, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks so much for having me back. I appreciate it. Um, all right. So the standard question for, uh, for book talks on this podcast is what's your book about? So what's your book about? Yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, uh, the book is about uh, Christian nationalism, as the subtitle says, uh, I started this book six or seven years ago when I kind of looked around and realized I no longer understood what was going on on the political right. Um, happy to call myself a conservative. Uh, I, I mean that in the pre 2016 sense. Uh, the remnanty yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah the remnanty <laughs> sense, the limited limited government, classical liberalism, civic republicanism, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I, I realized that the, the political right was no longer conservative, if it really had ever been genuinely so. So I kind of wanted to wrap my head around that. And that took me down the path looking at nationalism, which is a word Trump himself embraced in, in October of 2018. So I wanted to understand American nationalism. And I found that it's always, always been for, for decades, for centuries, wrapped up and entwined with Christianity, with symbols, rhetoric, values, heritage of Christianity. When Americans, uh, when American nationalists try to define what America is, they reach for Christian language, right? So the book is about that phenomenon. I look at it kind of first as an ideology, kind of top down, looking at the ideas. And then I look also at the kind of bottom up practice of it, embodied in what I call the Christian right. Uh, and then eventually the, the Trump movement. And I, the, the book isn't about Trump. There's only one chapter in there that really talks about him. But I do eventually get to Trump and uh, and, and talk about what led to his election and his presidency. So, um, listeners should know, it, this is, I mean, you're a 
you know, you're a bonafide egghead and you have all, you know, you know, all the right handshakes and you got the right Dakota rings. But this is also this is a pretty Christian book in the sense that it is mm -hmm. it is trying to speak in the vernacular with Christians about Christians on their own terms and not from a place of hostility, but from a place of I don't want to get grandiose and say witness or that kind of thing, but yeah. from a place of 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 tough love, let's say. Um, yeah, that, that's fair. I look. I'm talking kind of uh, talking to and, and with and about my, my people, my tribe, so to speak. Um, this is published with InterVarsity Academic Press. InterVarsity is a Christian publisher, and that was a deliberate choice. I wanted to find a publisher that would kind of reach this audience. And I share in the first chapter of the book. I'm a Christian, uh, kind of raised on the political right, the conservative right, and the Christian right. And so this is a world that I feel like uh, I, I know a little bit from the inside. And as I'm writing it, I'm trying to write empathetically and lovingly, but also give the the rebuke I think needs to be said. Uh, I was very frustrated. I looked at other books on the subject, Catherine Stewart's book, I think, Power Worshippers, and uh, Chris Hedge's book on American fascists. And they are talking about something a little similar, but they're really hostile outsiders. Mm -hmm. And I found their critiques were over the top. They were... Uh, you know, inaccurate in a lot of places. And so I wanted to offer a different critique that was from the inside and a bit more uh, charitable. Yeah. I mean, I read the Hedges book when it came out because I was at the time working on my own fascism related book and yeah. I was not, I'm not a big fan of it. I was also not a big fan yeah. of the double standard where you're allowed to call people, um, you don't like to your right fascists without any cultural condemnation. And yet, um, uh, the same standard doesn't work and reverse it anyway, but we don't need to dwell on all of that. Um, yeah. um, so, I mean, what's your, th I mean, I obviously I bring some cards to this table, but, um, what is your theory of the case? Like when you say nationalism has always been sort of, uh, entwined with, with, with Christianity. And I, take it to mean in America, because there are places that are yeah. nationalist yeah. that it's not, right? But yeah. um, um, just sort of what is your th what is your theory about why that's always been so? And also, and then why did things change? Why did things come to such a head five or six years ago? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a whole chunk of the book that, that didn't make the cut. Uh, there's a 40,000 words or so of history where I kind of recap where the stuff came from. Um, and so, so listeners will get a, a taste of that right now. That's not actually in the book. I, I, I'd say it's fair, I think it's fair to say that um, uh, Europeans who came to the new world always defined the project here in religious terms. Like you can find a recruiting pamphlet, uh, recruiting English settlers to come to the new world and quote, build God's temple. Like that's how they phrased it and how they framed it in the 17th century, in 1617. You can look at the debate between John Cotton and Roger Williams in the 1630s as they are arguing about the nature of the Puritan Commonwealth in Massachusetts. And John Cotton is saying, this is a Christian Commonwealth and I will use the power of the state to exile and punish anybody who disagrees. And of course, Roger Williams says, no, I don't agree. And he goes off and founds Rhode Island. Um, so there's always been this strand forever of some, some who are here who want to define this as a, a Christian project. You can, you can kind of march through American history and look at all of the, the rhetoric by, by professing Christians who say America is a Christian nation, America is a new Israel, uh, and who see 
America as the political outworking of their faith in some respect. So obviously there's always been a connection between uh, Christianity and, and the American experiment. Now, why did it come to a head five or six, seven years ago? Um, there's a lot, a lot of reasons. Starting 60, 70 years ago, right, American demographics started to change quite a bit. So it's, it's a true statement that American Christians, white American Christians, are a smaller portion of the population than they have ever been in American history, right? That's just a, the statistical truth. And it's a pretty common observation that when a community shrinks and finds its power shrinking, that will kind of change their attitude, right? There there's becomes a, a defensiveness and a reassertion of their identity and a kind of a, an eager, maybe insecure grasping to retain the social power and political power they used to have. And so I think that's true anywhere in the world. It's true of any community. And that's true of white American Christians. As their demographic power has shrunk, I think there's that sense that they need to do something to cling to the position they once had in American life as the kind of unquestioned uh, dominant group. Uh, so that's been going on for a couple of generations. In just the last 10 years, you could throw on things like the financial crisis of 2008 and the Obama presidency. And I think even the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have something to do with this. As we, we found ourselves unable to win those wars, it creates a sense of, again, a defensiveness and insecurity. We want to reassert something good about America. And so there's that sense of, uh, of reviving, you know, making America great again. Like that's a very powerful thing to say when you're in a period of, of malaise uh, and, and national frustration. So a lot of these things kind of come to head. And when people are looking for a language with which to express their desire to reassert American identity, the language at hand is the language of Christian nationalism. So, I mean, I, I just wrote this column about Biden's problems being overdetermined. I got overdetermined CEO on the brain. Um, yeah. um, as listeners know, I often will say that when I try to give an example of what overdetermined means, I'll talk about how I can give you 10 different reasons why Jews are liberal um, and they're each reason could explain the entirety for one one Jewish person and have nothing to do with another because there are just too many reasons why Jews are liberal and yeah. um, and so uh, I'm wondering if there's not a similar sort of overdetermined you know uh, phenomenon issue here insofar as um, the demographic decline thing I think is real I don't disagree with you at all about it but um, the decline of Christian power or, or, or comfort in numbers in, uh, in America isn't just a demographic thing. It's that the churches themselves are losing adherence, right? I mean, the, yes, the, number, the relative number of whites in America is declining, but not nearly as much as the number of believing church attending Christians, right? The white people, white people are sticking around. Um, but the share of white people that are actually believing Christians is shrinking much faster than the demographic shrinkage. Um, how much do you think that plays into it? Is, is this sense of, or a, a certain amount of despair that, that comes with the sense of either losing faith or, and wanting to find in the sort of Chestertonian sense of, you know, we're trying to replace that faith with something else, um, or, um, despair that you no longer have, 
the fellowship and community of having a lot of, you know, it becomes harder to be a sincere, decent, believing adherent of any religion. I'm not trying to pick on Christians when you don't have strength in numbers, when you don't have the sort of fellowship and sense of community that you're all in it and you're all policing each other in the best sense of the word um, to be good Christians. I mean, how much of it has to do with a, the, 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 the secularization part of it? Right. We're all bullying alone. Our institutions are atrophying. Uh, civil society is falling apart and churches are part of that. And as people lose faith in their institutions, the, the churches experience their 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 share of that. Uh, Yuval Levine talks about this or, you know, atrophies of institutions. Uh, and people have lost faith and trust in, in any institution. And when we see church sex abuse scandals and all that, it kind of accelerates this drive away from the institution that used to guide and order our religious lives. And yet we still have a spiritual impulse. So that spiritual impulse gets directed inward to the individual and then outward towards uh, the larger amorphous grouping of maybe the nation or something like that. Uh, and that is a kind of a poisonous mix. And I think it does feed directly into this uh, nationalism stuff. Uh, nationalism is an effort to treat the entire nation as one big tribe or one big family. I, I think you've said this before. It's like treating the macrocosm as an example of the microcosm. Right. Um, where you're trying to fulfill your personal and community longings through the large impersonal uh, macrocosmic nation, which just doesn't work. And it's quite dangerous. It's in some sense, it's kind of like trying to turn the nation into one big polis or city state, right? Right. The ancient Greek city state was both church and state and civil society all wrapped up into one. You could kind of merge all human loyalties in one focus and it could be very fulfilling, but it's also a little dangerous, a little totalitarian, uh, and, and, uh, and a large impersonal polity like the nation just doesn't work. Um, let me, shift a little bit uh you you talked about the demographic decline is real but mm -hmm. does it can it really fully explain it the demographic decline uh, of white christians in america is real but maybe not as pronounced as people feel it to be mm -hmm. and i think this is this is really key there's a feeling on the right that might actually be out of proportion with the reality of it but it doesn't matter because the feeling is really there uh, there's a sociologist who's written this great book on strangers in their own land mm -hmm. um where she she spent a long time just kind of living with people on the right and listening to what they say. And she wrote down what she calls the, the deep story of the right. And the deep story of the right goes like this. We Americans, and it's white Christian men speaking this, have been standing in line waiting for our turn for the American dream. And we're working hard, we're playing by the rules. But there's people cutting in line. Women and minorities uh, are, are cutting in line through affirmative action and whatever else. And they're cheating and we are we are falling back we're actually losing ground and we're, we're not making progress we're regressing uh, because of all these cheaters right and so there's a panicked sense that we're now moving backwards and it's not so much about the pace or the how far back in line you are it's the direction and since they believe that again it really feeds that sense of defensiveness and a need to reassert their place in line and reassert traditional American identity as quick and hard as possible. And I think I'm, I'm very persuaded by this analysis. I think that it's a great way of understanding what the right tells itself and what this community tells itself about the state of America today and their place in it. Um, we should be clear before we get too far afield. Um, while you, I mean, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, but while you concede that 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 
white nationalism, right, or white supremacy, or whatever, or, or all that. The, the the racist version of nationalism is a subset of this larger thing. It's not really what you're talking about, right? I mean, you're talking about sort of the best version of Christian nationalism, not the ugliest and dumbest version of Christian nationalism, because there are sincere good people who you just think aren't evil, but just wrong, right? I mean, that's sort of yeah. a fair characterization. Yes, and, and and it was a deliberate choice of mine. There, there really is some ugly stuff out there. There is white nationalism, there's racism. My book is largely not about that. Not because it's not there, but because I think the other better, stronger version needed a response of people who are you know, sincere, good faith, good conscience, nonetheless, I think are mistaken. I feel like there's an article I need to write just, just saying, is Christian nationalism racist? Because again, that's what some of the harder critics on the left will claim is just a, it's just a mask for white nationalism. I think that's not quite accurate. It's not quite fair. There's a very complicated relationship between Christian nationalism and, and racism. Um, definitionally, it's not racist, right? If you just look at what the articulate ideologues say that they want for Christian nationalism, it's not racist. If you look at the embodied practice, there's some, it's a, it's a more complicated story. I think it's true to say that Christian nationalism does not question what the prevailing cultural template of America is and should look like. They don't question it, but if you look at it, it does tend to be culturally Anglo mm -hmm. or Anglo-Protestant or European or something like that. And that is maybe inhospitable is the most polite way of putting it, inhospitable to those who don't conform to that cultural template, which means it does tend to be blind to the realities of what I would call uh, inherited racial inequalities, which I think are really there. I think inherited racial inequalities are a fact of American life and they're terrible. And I think that Christian nationalism tends not to see it and therefore it tends to perpetuate it because it does not prioritize it as a, as a problem needing solution. That's a overly complicated way of saying there's a connection there, but it, it, it not definitionally. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, I mean, um, it's nice to have you in the pool because um, I have real struggle. I've had a lot of real struggles arguing with liberals who think that I completely agree with them and their criticism of the right, when in fact, like, I think a lot of these distinctions really matter um, in part because if you pretend that these distinctions don't exist, you're going to end up calling a bunch of people who aren't racist, racists, and you're going to make them more immune to the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the appeals to conscience about racism because it, it, it just, it, it, it can spoil the 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 entire thing, and um, you know one of the points I try to make to people is I think that there is a there is a sense in which a chunk of the we used to call it the religious right and we call it the Christian right whatever whatever term we want to use for it um, there is a certain acknowledgement about the racial component of it because if you go back and you look at the most popular figures coming out of the Tea Party stuff, which had its own valence of Christian right stuff that was kind of under the radar for a while. Um, the most popular hero, you know, leaders of it were, you know, Herman Cain and really Ben Carson. And Ben Carson is a deeply, you know, committed Christian who talks in very biblical terms from 
you know, quite often. And part of it, I've always sort of chalked up to, um, first of all, a desire to, to rebut the left wing attack saying you're all racist by saying, how could be racist? We got this guy. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, you can say it's tokenism to a certain extent and it may or may not be, it's the, the debate, but tokenism is different than hardcore racism, right? I mean, like they're, the Nazis were not interested in a lot of token Jews in positions of power. Right, um, right. And, um, you know, the Klan didn't have a black spokesperson to, like, you know, help it with its PR image. And um, but also there's this phenomenon. I hate the term and I'm not a huge fan of the thinker, but there's this guy, Peter Varek, who I you probably may not have heard of, um, who there was a brief period in the early 50s where he was a competitor to be the, the intellectual voice of conservatism. Um, against um, William F. Buckley. And uh, William F. Buckley was very young. Peter Varek was this established writer. He was a, a poet. I think he won a couple of Pulitzers for poetry. Um, anyway, he came up with this phrase called trans tolerance, which I think is the bad phrase for an interesting phenomenon, where he noted that ideology tends to, ideological commitment tends to shrink other forms of commitments. And or, you know, or if you want to put it this way, one overriding form of bigotry or prejudice will shrink the other forms of bigotry and prejudice. And mm -hmm. so his example of it was how there were all of these very McCarthyite, hardcore right wing anti-communist groups that loved having black spokespeople. Just thought it was awesome. Right. And all of a sudden, whatever racism that you might have expected with those kinds of groups kind of goes away because it's better for the sort of popular front coalitionism and tokenism to have these kinds of spokesmen. And you see this kind of stuff all the time. I once got heckled by, um, I got heckled a few times by the griper guys, the Nick Fuentes, neo-Nazi mm -hmm. kids. Yeah. And literally while they were talking basically about how the mud people are destroying our country or whatever, um, I would accuse them of being racist and, and they say, how can you call us racist when we've been endorsed by Michelle Malkin, a person of color, you know, there's that kind of right. like, it's like, Oh, I take it all back then, you know? Um, but anyway, I, I, I think it's an interesting and complicated subject to talk about. And because the tendency to just grab bad language from really passionate people, sometimes can get them into all sorts of trouble. And I think a lot of the Christian nationalist stuff sounds more racist than intended to people who are just not bought into it. Sorry for the long digression. No, I, I, I think that's right. And that's why the word I, I, I choose, I think in the book to describe it is not racism. It is, uh, I think I say racial insensitivity mm -hmm. or, or sort of, a, it's a form of cognitive blindness. Um, because if you define America one way, if you say we're all, uh, yeah, this is a Christian nation, and when you scratch deeper, you find out what you mean really is Anglo-Protestantism. That's Samuel Huntington's phrase. Mm -hmm. Then um, you're, things like inherited racial inequality don't register on the radar. They just don't show up. You don't see it. It's just not there. It's not something that, will, that you'll notice if you look across the American landscape. And since you're not going to notice it, you're also not going to try to solve it, which means it won't be part of your political agenda. And that's how things like Christian nationalism just just glosses right over the realities of, of racial inequality and just doesn't seem to care. And again, I'm not choosing to call that racism so much as racial insensitivity. I think that's a better way of describing it. As you say, 
uh, it might sound more racist than it is to people on the left who use the word racism to describe everything. Like everything's right. racist. And, and if everything's racist, nothing is. And it's very, it's very tiring. All right. So uh, why don't we get sort of in, into the weeds on it then? What, um, you know, what are the fundamental tenets of Christian nationalism to the extent you haven't gotten into it? And, and why are they wrong from a Christian perspective? Yeah. So uh, I like to des describe, I, I may have used this metaphor last time uh, you and I chatted. Uh, nationalism, I think of all kinds, um, starts with the idea that you can look at the world and draw a map of the world's cultures. And that map is as clear and clear cut as a checkerboard uh, that you can draw the map. And there's clear, hard boundaries around each distinct culture in the world. So this, this square on the checkerboard over here is Frenchness, French culture. And you've got clear boundary lines saying this is Frenchness, but over there is something else called Germanness or Spanishness. Um, and once you've drawn that map, then you just assign each square on the checkerboard its own government. Uh, nationalism is kind of the belief in a sovereign culture. Every culture governs itself, gets its own government. That's why we have this idea of a, of a nation state. Um, Christian American Christian nationalism looks at the checkerboard called Americanness and says, we are a Christian nation uh, and we need to stay that way. And our government has a responsibility to keep us, us, that, that we can use the government to sustain our cultural identity. Uh, it's not simply an historical observation that we've always been supermajority professing Christians. It's also a political agenda saying we have to stay this way. We can pass laws that encourage and defend and support some kind of Christian identity for America. That's, I think, the hardcore of Christian nationalism. Now, note, it involves a presupposition about the ability to draw boundaries around cultures, highly problematic. It also involves an idea about what governments rightly ought to do. And you and I, as limited government guys, like we don't, I think, buy into this. We don't think the government should be in the business of regulating culture. But nationalists of all stripes, they, they think the government ought to do that. They think the government can do that, which I don't think it can. All right. So that's what it is. Now you asked, you know, what's wrong with it? There's, there's all kinds of things wrong with it. Um, I just don't think you can draw a map of the world's cultures that way. I think the boundaries between cultures are blurry. I think they overlap. I think they're fluid and they change constantly. And so if you try to force a correspondence between cultural and political boundaries, you're going to have to use some coercion. And that means it is intrinsically illiberal in some sense. You're going to find some illiberalism showing up somewhere, some oppression of some kind. It can be very soft and benign, but at the very least, it treats people like a second-class citizen if they don't conform. But of course, there's much more kind of aggressive ways of, of, of uh, oppression that this can take. You asked me, like, what are the problems from a Christian perspective? Uh, that's a great question. And, and this is maybe the most important, I hope, the, you know, one of the more important things in the book. As a Christian, I think that Christian nationalism is bad for Christians mm -hmm. and for the church. Uh, I think that it kind of m misses the point of what Christianity is for. Right. I don't think Christianity is about resurrecting Christendom. You know, Christian nationalism is, is kind of that. It's trying to rebuild Christendom here in America, a, a social order that, that uh, privileges Christianity, Christian norms and rhetoric. I just don't think that's why Jesus came. That's not what he, that's not what he preached about. 
I think that there will be a Christian kingdom, but that's when Jesus comes again. That's like that that's his business, not really mine. I'm not here to build the kingdom of God. Uh, but I'm here to, you know, you know, to testify to his coming and to and to the to the creator. Um, so I think that maybe Christian nationalism misses the point of what Christianity is for. It miss uh communicates what the gospel of Jesus really is. And it um, blurs the jurisdictions of church and state. And here I'm a Baptist. I think that the jurisdictions need to be pretty clearly separate. A lot of other Christian traditions are happy to blur them a little bit, but uh, the Baptists are the ones who really kind of <laughs> invented the idea of religious freedom and disestablishment. And I'm very, very keen on keeping uh, a good fence uh, between these things. Because when I uh, think about um, the church's responsibility, I think the church has the exclusive responsibility to teach the truth of God, to proclaim the gospel, and to embody uh, Jesus's work on earth. I think the church has the exclusive responsibility to do that. And if we start, what Christian nationalism does, it starts to offload some of that work onto the state. So the state itself begins to start teaching uh, Christian uh, doctrine, and, and the church loses control over that. And we could end up, as I think probably we did have in American history, clear up in the 1950s, we had agents of the state teaching uh, a version of Christianity in public schools that wasn't actually very Christian. And so people were being misled about what Christianity is. Yeah, I mean, again, this is uh, always, it's always fraught for me to weigh in on, on these things um, as a quasi, as a sympathetic outsider. But... Um, I've always thought that there was the, one of the problems that that political Christianity gets itself into is that religious Christianity, um, or auth one might say authentic Christianity, is supposed to be somewhat oppositional to power. Um, certainly, Jesus was. Certainly, Christianity was for the first few centuries, um, yeah. and um, and. It's the it, and it you know the, and the the denominations where they've thought about how to use power, um, political power. You know, the Catholic Church it put some thought into this because it essentially was a political authority for a very long time, and one ex to one extent or another, um, got itself in a lot of trouble in that regard. Um, at the same time, but the in the American political experience like it is is precisely that oppositionalness that render under unto caesar'sness of christianity that you know it's funny the christian nationalists say this was a christian nation and informed by you know four christians and blah blah blah, blah. but it was that part of christianity that really informed a big chunk of the founding about how to keep the, the 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 chocolate and peanut butter separate um and uh and it's and i and i think you know the separation of church and state stuff is sometimes overblown and you know it's not a wall and i'm i was a new house fan about how you need oh, yeah. religion needs a voice in the public square i believe all that i'm not sure for sanitizing christianity I, I or anything yeah but yeah it's not so, christianity does not have a great man. No offense to you guys, but it has no has no great manual about how to run a country, and um, 
and you're making the point earlier about how nationalism is this 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 creed that we are this idea that we grab onto because we want some 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 sort of replacement transcendent faith. It's funny the you know there was a time in the scholarship when Rousseau was considered the father, the inventor of nationalism or the near inventor of nationalism. And we used to actually call in the academic literature, I shouldn't say we, but it used to be called in the academic literature, romantic nationalism, because it was associated with Rousseau's romanticism. And Rousseau, who, you know, if you go by Roger, Robert Nisbet, who conceived of the most totalitarian philosophical system in Western history or something along those lines, I think that's a little unfair, um, but his idea of the general will and, and the social contract, even he said, yeah, this crap won't work for anything bigger than Geneva. <laughs> and so like the idea that you can have this Christian nation that has a department of good Christianness for a country of 330 million people on a continental scale is just as a matter of public policy, kind of nuts. Yeah. As I say in the book, the idea that our government is competent enough to engineer our culture is a little ridiculous when you consider it can barely deliver the mail, right? Our, our government just can't do this stuff. Uh, and I don't, it, it requires a boundless faith in the ability of government to do things that I just don't have. Having worked in government for a decade, uh, I just don't think we can do it. Um, I want to make sure I agree with several things you said. Number one, I, I'm not, I'm not an advocate of state sponsored secularism like the French model of laicite, that's not what I'm out for. I'm pretty comfortable with an accommodationist interpretation of the First Amendment. I don't mind crosses in public lands. That's not a big deal to me. Uh, either way, by the way, I don't care if they are, mm -hmm. and I don't care if they're not. It's just not a, a major issue. Um, so when I when I talk about separating church and state, don't hear me say, uh, you know, let's adopt the French model of state-sponsored secularism. I think it's really important that we allow religious expression. Like, being involved in politics as a Christian, that's not Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. And I encourage all Christians to like vote for justice, be involved in public square. That's all good stuff. You also mentioned the, uh, the need for churches to maintain their independence. Um, great example of this. Think about uh, an abolitionist movement. Um, the Southern churches were uh, uh, established more or less, mm -hmm. and they were very tightly entwined with the Southern state governments. And the Confederacy proclaimed itself a Christian nation, right? In their constitution, they talked about how they were embodying uh, the Christian identity of America, all that stuff. And it was the abolitionist movement really came from the Northern churches and who that were less tied to the state. Remember the Northern state governments and, and the national government was not abolitionist. Mm -hmm. they, they thought the abolitionists were crazy zealots. So it did require some distance from power for these churches to give voice to the full abolitionist sentiment. So I think that's a, it's a good point that you made. I'm, I'm just trying to give an example here. There's a reason why I think uh, churches uh, in America largely did not say anything about segregation for 100 years because uh, they were uh, overly concerned with protecting American identity and, and rapprochement between North and South. And, you know, th that's an example of how churches lost their independence and lost their prophetic witness is what we would say. Um, and so... I so one of the one of the problems I've got with arguing about Christian nationalism is that, um, like, having spent a lot of time reading about the Progressive Era and post millennialism, and um, every time I say post millennialism, um, 
David Bonson, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, says, there's been a disturbance in the force and writes in about how he has to come back on the remnant and, and correct me. Um, but uh, um, I find that like there are some very serious people who um, are arguing for national up. Uh, there's there's some very serious people and there's some and there are other people who take themselves very seriously who arguing for nationalism of one flavor or another um and by one definition or another but i don't find i don't off the top of my head and again i haven't gotten too far into the book yet but the number of serious people who argue specifically for christian nationalism seems kind of few and far between to me and you know i mean i, I can name a whole bunch of people from the progressive era who were for christian nationalism um but like who are the people today making the explicitly not necessarily just nationalist argument but christian nationalist argument that you're engaging with yeah so i spent chapter three trying to give the stage to the advocates of christian nationalism and i, I chose the scholarly advocates because i didn't want to fall into the trap of picking a caricature right mm -hmm. so I, I i spent quite a while talking about samuel huntington uh, no longer living, but his last book, Who Are We? He talks about our Anglo-Protestant heritage and how we have to keep it and all that. Um, Rich Lowry wrote his book on the case for nationalism. And he didn't use the phrase Christian nationalism, but he did uh, spend a chapter on our English forebears and a whole chapter on our on the, on the Bible, on the biblical roots of American identity. Mm -hmm. I'd call that Christian nationalism. Uh, again, he didn't use the phrase, but I think it's a pretty good example of it. Even Yoram Hazoni and his book on the, the virtue of nationalism it's not about America. Uh, there's a lot in there that's really about Israel, modern day Israel, but he does talk about America briefly. And he, he defines America as a country defined by its Protestant heritage, right? You don't have to be a Christian to espouse the secular ideology of Christian nationalism. And I think it's fair to say that Yoram defines America in the same way that American Christian nationalists do. Um, so there's a couple examples. Rusty Reno mm -hmm. sort of falls in this category. His, it's a very, his stuff is very complex. I like some of it, um, but there's that. There's this ethicist at uh, Oxford, great guy, Nigel Bigger, whom I really like a lot of his stuff, but he wrote this book uh, Between Kin and Cosmopolis where he defends a version of sort of nationalism, sort of patriotism. I agree with like 90% of it. And he just crosses over the line and says, and that's why we have to have an established church. <laughs> and I just, it's like, nope, we, I can't go there. And he, and he specifically addresses the American case. He's a Brit, but he addresses the American case and says that we need to sustain our, I think he calls our, our ethical monotheistic uh, de facto establishment. Um, and, and that, again, I think just sort of crosses a toe over the line into a version of Christian nationalism. Right, so there's a couple examples of people I think do espouse a version of this in a, in a very scholarly way, and I'm there's plenty of other you know Lauren Boebert and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we can, but but I, I really want to engage with the the scholarly advocates. Yeah, no, because this is sort of my my frustration is that it, the this and I got you know Rich Lowry is a dear friend of mine. I, yep. I've been disagreeing with him about this stuff for almost a decade now, so uh, my cards are on the table on there. Some of the other people you mentioned, I have very differing views on, um, but this is this is sort of part of the problem is that the people most willing to actually say Christian nationalism um, that I've that I've seen, and that's one of the reasons why I asked. I was hoping that there was some really brilliant pastor or theologian out there making this argument um, because I don't 
but I've never, I haven't encountered it. The most of the people I see making the explicit case for Christian qua Christian nationalism are to take a term from, you know, the, from academia and social sciences, morons. And, um, I mean, like I, I Marjorie Taylor green talking about in some Twitter or Instagram post yeah. about how I would return to Christian nationalism. If I were a Christian nationalist, I would say, dear God, shut up because you're ruining it for me. And it's funny. I've been having this fight with, you know, uh, my friends, David, uh, not David up uh, with, with, with rich and with Michael Brennan Doherty about nationalism and all of these things and populism for a long time. And when Trump declared that he's not actually a conservative, he's a nationalist. I cheered for joy because yeah. I was like, thank yeah. you. Thank you for letting go of my word. Take your word. And I wrote, I remember writing this corner post at the time um, over at NR saying, hey, good luck with that, Michael, because yeah. now you're going to have to defend his version of nationalism, which is going to be stupid and jingoistic and all of these kinds of things. And the smart people who want to defend nationalism are going to be stuck having to defend the biggest marketer of it. Um, but theologically, well, I mean, there isn't, a, there, I mean, it, even historically, who, who would you say is the best from a theological perspective, right? I mean, because this is the problem with Christian nationalism is it's basically nationalism squeezed through the car wash of Christianity, you know, where they just, they, or the, the, the paint shop of Christianity, where they tack on a lot of Christian verbiage to essentially a nationalist argument. Is there a good Christian, I mean, a, a argument that you like to engage with in terms of how you respect it on its own terms that makes the argument not from nationalism that is Christian, but Christianity that is nationalist. Um, I, I think Nigel Bigger would probably be the closest uh -huh. to that. Uh, and, and then I'd go back to Rusty Reno. Um, both of them mix theology with political theory uh, and, uh, and, and other stuff. And uh, th they probably would be, I think, what you're looking for there, mm -hmm. the best articulate defenders of this. Again, they don't use the phrase Christian nationalism. Uh, In part because they're Catholics. I mean, that's the other problem is like, a Catholic Christian nationalist has got their own problems, right? Because it's a <laughs> yeah. universal church. Um, uh, you know, yeah. and, and, and America is the last place that will ever where Catholic integralism will, will ever work. <laughs> so I don't quite understand. Yeah, I mean, you can't make a, uh, national sovereignty under the, 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 the authority of the Catholic church is a bit oxymoronic. Right. Um, and, and this is why I, I, part of my problem with the nationalist movement in general, thick rich out of it for a second is that it's basically grabbing for different permission structures to justify their either ascendancy on the right and in conservative institutions or, or just simple power worship. And yeah. I'm, I'm legitimately interested in a good argument that isn't that stuff. I just find them very few and far between. Well, here's one of the stronger arguments I've encountered. And I, this is a difficult, challenging one. Um, and I keep waiting for a reviewer to, to raise this. Um, here's the nationalist, one of the strongest nationalist arguments that I can think of. We need an anchor of social cohesion. We need uh, a general societal consensus. Otherwise, we'll fall apart. There's nothing that holds us together. I was pretty persuaded. I, I kind of went into the book thinking I was going to come out a pure creedalist mm -hmm. and I didn't, I couldn't, I, I'm not persuaded that we can be held together by the American creed alone. We do need some stronger glue to hold us together as a country, as a nation, whatever. 
Um, and the nationalists will say, that's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. A common cultural template that binds us together as one people. And uh, I do have a response to that, but it's a, it's a pretty, it's, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. That is a real challenge. And maybe I'll ask you, Jonah, how would you respond to that when somebody says we need something, some kind of cultural glue that defines us and holds us together as a people? I would agree with that entirely. Um, that said, well, I agree with that until you hit the point of diminishing returns on the point. But I think the point is entirely valid and correct. Yeah. Uh, I think the problem with that is that it, 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 there's a lot of question begging in it that says we need that and therefore this is it and this is how we can implement it. And I think that gets the, like, it's sort of, for a bad analogy, it's like climate change. I agree climate change is a problem. I really do. And uh, I may not buy into the hysterics of, you know, the, the, the apocalyptic versions of it, but I definitely think it's a problem. I'm really worried about the oceans, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean I have to agree with their pro, pro, proposed solutions. And particularly if I don't think their solutions would work. And similarly, I agree we need more national cohesion in this country. My argument would be that the way you get it, it's paradoxical and counterintuitive, is by having much more local cohesion. That the little platoons of life, community, faith, family, friends, the microcosm in the Hayekian sense, those are the places we get meaning from. You fix those and the national lack of meaning and cohesion problem goes away. But if you try to fix all of those things from above at the national level, you will make all of those things worse. And so the push for nationalism from above will almost as a fact of logic create antibody responses to it that are worse than um, that, that make the entire effort not worth it. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, I was talking to uh, Yuval Levine again about his book on institutions. And I asked him, I said, is the nation one of the institutions that's broken and needs to be fixed? He said, yes, but you fix it from the bottom up, not the top down. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you try to fix it from the top down, you're going to make the problem worse. It's that's not something that can be fixed from the top down. Um, so I think that's just a helpful way to think about it. Um, the, uh, I had another thought here on the social cohesion part. Yeah. So I want to agree with you and agree with me that <laughs> yeah, there really is a problem here, um, that we do need more social cohesion, but the problem with the nationalists is that they simply declare by fiat first, that they're the ones who get to say mm -hmm. for the rest of us, what that point of cohesion should be. Right. Um, and, and two, they just declare by fiat, it's theirs. Like it, here it is, here's the answer. And the rest of you simply have to conform. And that the, that the point is something from the past, right? We have to get back to a return to make America great again. We have to return to our roots, but look, America changes, cultures change. And I think our point of cohesion will have to change with it. Uh, <laughs> You know, the thing about nationalism is it kind of reifies or, or it freeze frames culture at one particular point, and it does not allow for the possibility of cultural change and fluidity. Uh, and that's why, as you said, it always creates antibodies. Mm. People who are on the side of change, they're just not going to conform and say, well, I'm going to give up what I was going to be, and now I'm going to be what you want me to be on some template from the 1950s. This is not going to work. Yeah, and I, it's funny. I, I think that the 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 left understands that there is a lack of cohesion too. 
And the problem with the left is that there's, the, by having cut it, cut themselves off from a lot of the wellsprings of, of, you know, concepts like nationalism, patriotism, religion, these things all are sort of problematic for, for the left, depending, you know, for a lot of people on the left. And, um, so government becomes the only source of national cohesion in their rhetoric. And, uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was very popular to say government is the it, government is just the word for the things that we all do together, right. which, you know, makes me want to flip the safety on my rifle. I mean, that that kind of language, I hate that stuff. And um, and I remember Kamala Harris, when she was still in the primary running for president and she had a book out and she was and this was back when everybody sort of nodded as, as she was this really insightful commentator on on politics and and culture and whatnot and um and she was asked you know is there anything that still holds us together and or some version of that and i must have seen her do it three different ways five five different times but she always basically said some version of oh yeah the things that the, the things that unite us are still stronger than the things that divide us for example we all worry about whether we're going to lose our job we all worry about our retirement. We all worry about um, putting food on the table and taking, we all love our kids. And the problem with that language, uh, among the problems with that language, is that first of all, you could be describing any country anywhere, right? Because that's true. That is, and, and second of all, like the things that bind us together have to be more than mere, the, the mere demands of biological bipedal life. Right. I mean, and um, but they don't have the rhetoric, the and the concepts behind the access to the concepts behind the rhetoric to talk about things about that in, invoke forget nationalism, just patriotism in a way that doesn't create problems with members of their own coalition. And on all right, we have a much bigger problem or much different problem is that we have access to all of this language, but we use it in ways that tends to exclude people. Um, and be uninviting for people who don't already agree with it. Interesting you say that the left recognizes the need for more cohesion. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that mm -hmm. uh, because I see lots of ways in which they seem very focused on sub-national identity, mm -hmm. you know, identity politics, the, the commonalities of race, class, and gender rather than uh, nation. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and, and a lot of that directly it sort of eats away. It's corrosive of any kind of national identity. And you look at things like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which is just one long diatribe against how evil the United States is, right? That seems that's wildly popular still to this day mm -hmm. uh, on the left is the way of thinking about American history and American identity. There's a discourse on the left that seems unable to recognize anything good about America. Uh, yeah, so there's that. So if there is a thing that the left puts forward as a unifying center point. It's not just government. I think it's also the almost utopian vision they think government will bring forth, right? They they have this vision, this this idea of the kingdom, the, the coming, uh, you know, a paradise of perfect equality for all. And that is what binds them together. And they think that the vision should bind all of us together. And when you or I say, actually, I, I don't really want to go to that future. That's why it's not experienced by them as mere disagreement. 
it's almost a form of sedition or treason against the vision of the future they hold forth. And they, it's almost like they don't have a category for how to disagree well um, at that level. For them, it's almost a religious disagreement. Does, mm-hmm. that, does that make sense? No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, you know, political religion guy. Um, yeah. um, have you ever read Michael Burley's histories? I'm going to ask you the last time you were on here. I know I asked someone recently. This. Um, he basically argues that a lot of the conflicts of the 20th century were displaced or substitute conflicts from the wars of religion. Um, and um, his book on the Third Reich, um, basically, which is fantastic history of the Third Reich, uh, sets it up as basically um, in the the Eric Vogelin frame of political religion. And I think there's a lot to that. I, 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 I think a lot of our arguments either are proxies for religious arguments or a lot of our arguments in this country draw from the parts of the brain that deal with religion and we don't fully acknowledge it. Um, but is it the interesting thing that I, I agree with you about the, you know, so since we're talking about Yuval Levin, um, his uh, his book on Burke and Payne, um, the Great Debate, um, as which which I love for a bunch of reasons. Um, one is that you know he does something that I think you know it sort of it brings out the inner Richard Rorty in me. He um, he grounds the divides in the American left and right in American terms rather than. You know, because something I grew up on and I, I still instinctively do is say, oh, that's Marxist. And the truth is, is that Marx is a useful stand in for all sorts of things. But most of the people that we accuse of being Marxists haven't read a sentence of Marx, couldn't tell you what Marxism really is or isn't and any of that kind of thing. And and Yuval's point is that pain represents a sort of left wing view, a progressive view of the role of politics and Burke represents the right wing view and, and sort of a key to his point is that the thing that divides left and right are metaphors and for pain, the point of politics is to get us somewhere is somewhere in the future that we are marching to a destination. And when you're trying to march everybody to a destination, everybody has to go the same way. Right. And so government is basically uh, beating a drum or marching people towards a place. And you don't want to leave anybody behind. Right. Because the whole point is we're going to move the entire unit that is the nation to someplace. And and you've all argued that Burke, his metaphors are about space, about a zone of liberty, a garden, a place where people can be themselves, can be free, that institutions can form. And and this difference between classical conservatism of of, of sort of sp- giving space to people for freedom versus the left wing classical left wing thing was getting everybody to a specific place, which I think informs Dewey it defor- informs all sorts. And it, it's as analogs in Marxism, obviously. Right. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to me, because you, you said it a couple times now is that what the nationalists want to do is get a, is go back to a certain past and what the, and the progressives you just said want to get us to a certain future. I want to reject the whole access. Like, I, like the government is not politics is not there to get us to someplace in the future or in the past. And um, 
And that's why I think conservatism sits outside of this sort of progressive nationalist access in part because access in part because people forget that the original progressives were nationalists and that there's something inherently progressive about nationalism. Right. So, by the way, this is all getting into the next book. Uh, this book on nationalism is, is volume one of a trilogy and the next volume is on progressivism, uh, which I'll be working on over the next five years. Um, progressivism has 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 inbuilt vanguardism, right? Right. It's this idea that like they self-selected click who understand the arc of history will, as you say, march us forward to that vision of the future. And that's the root of kind of a, almost an intellectual authoritarianism. And I think that's where we get cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to, to bring it down to brass tacks. Um, uh, so I look forward to kind of unpacking that in, in the next book uh, someday. Um, here's, here, let, me, let me try to challenge you though. This is the challenge I'm wrestling with. Isn't there something good about progressives' moral zeal? Mm -hmm. Isn't that where we got the great reforms of the progressive era, cleaning up the food supply and ending child labor? Where would we be without progressives? You want to not go to the past, not go to the future, but kind of exist in our space. But doesn't don't we need something that does nudge us forward decade by decade to, to achieve a more perfect union and achieve a greater degree of justice and equality for all? How, how's that? Yeah, I got, I got, I got no problem with that. Um, I have what I what I have a problem with is, so I I kind of believe that America has an auto that Western civilization, but really America has an autoimmune disease, where when you have an autoimmune disease, uh, your your very your vital antibody system, right, your immune system that you would die in hours after birth if you didn't have one, right. Uh, when it's healthy, it's dealing with real problems. When you have an autoimmune disease, your natural healthy immune system starts attacking your own organs as alien antibodies. And so when I look at things like tearing down statues or, uh, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the boulderizing of American history, the Howard Zinn project of basically saying yeah. everything that was good about this country we should be blind to and we should only look at the bad things. I see that as an autoimmune sort of overreaction. Um, and, and so I'm, and this may be my rank punditry polluting my, my philosophical and metaphysical points of view. I think there are very few problems we have in this country that wouldn't be solved if everybody just did their job. <laughs> right if everybody just stayed in their freaking lane right that dads work really hard at being dads that professors work really hard at teaching the things they're supposed to be teaching about that schools did that work really hard at just teaching the things that they're supposed to be teaching about that journal that reporters just reported things rather than had cosmic things that foundations and institutions and that Nike shut the hell up about all sorts of things that is not in their ballywick, that everyone wasn't sort of cudgeled to put the right poster in their window. If people just sort of stayed in their lane, if, if, if city governments focused on fighting crime and cleaning up garbage and running hospitals properly, first of all, Democrats would be in great shape forever. But second of all, um, uh, I would at least be willing to entertain an argument about this, these sunny uplands of history that progressives want to get us to. But like, I think part of the problem that we've got is that we've become so fixated on 
that the the utopianism has swamped the do your job part and people uh, people are bored with the actual requirements of their jobs and they want only to talk about this utopian stuff so like you know rather than lock up rapists and murderers they want to talk about getting rid of incarceration and no one is going to listen to those people about those kinds of reforms unless they do their jobs first and a burke a burkean view is slower than the progressive view but burke says look i must bear with infirmities until they fester into crimes he totally believed in reform he totally believed in in doing what is that there was a role for the state to improve man you know the citizens lives and deal with corruption and and all that kind of stuff but he just didn't want to get way out ahead of everybody and drag everybody in directions that they didn't want to go in and and so i think there's there's role for zeal but i again i think all the if we could just channel all of that zeal to the most local level possible to the problems where you actually know the names of the people who are suffering um we would solve vast amounts of 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 the problems in this country and i apologize for filibustering when we're supposed to when you're supposed to be doing all the talking but you asked me a question and i get worked up about this so i, I still have one more question for you um but i just want to say uh i i re recognize the symmetry here if we can put a tidy bow on this we talked about nationalism and how there's a seed of insight there. We do need more national cohesion, but nationalism is the wrong solution, goes too far. Same sense, we also need a sense of reform, a sense of uh, you know, fixing fixing the injustices in society, but progressivism is the wrong solution and goes too far and all that. Uh, so we all just need a bit more uh, sense and moderation. Okay, so um, if you'll allow me, your book, Suicide of the West, a fantastic book. I really like it. Thanks. You made a choice to bracket God. Mm -hmm and speak as if he was not part of the conversation, the problem or the solution, up until essentially the last couple of pages. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that choice. Um, why did you make that choice and how did it affect the argument you made? Sure, I, uh, yeah, so the first sentence of the book is, there is no God in this book. Right. And, uh, right. um, and I originally had plans because one of my favorite books to read to my daughter was uh, this Grover from Sesame Street book about the monster at the end of this book. And then it turns out Grover is the monster at the end of the book. And I was I had this idea that maybe God would come back in at the end and he goes a little bit. But the reason why I did that is that, um, you know, even before Trump came along, um, I had decided that I needed to start modeling the behaviors that I found so lacking on the right. And um, I used to be very smash mouth, very sort of in the fight kind of guy. Still believe in all that stuff. I just, I think that the, the modalities of how sort of right wing anger stuff was getting out of hand was something I started to reject. And I really started to embrace persuasion and the importance of persuasion and making arguments. I always believed the arguments were central um, to the success of the right. And, but I was, I had this idea that I wanted to argue on the secular left's own terms. And the secular left's terms are, uh, you know, you ask someone on the left, why is there government? Why should we have government or the state, whatever? And most of the time they'll talk about outcomes that they want. Uh, get rid of inequality and get rid of um, 
to educate everybody, public sanitation, uh, um, uh, public health, uh, life expectancy. You just go down a long list of, of, of policy outcomes that they want the government to be involved in, to help improve and all the rest. And my argument is that liberal democratic capitalism is really the only thing that has ever enabled sustained improvement on a mass scale, in a democratic mass scale, uh, for all of those things. And, um, and so therefore, you can still believe in a strong welfare state. You can have all role of government this, role of government that. That's all fine. But hostility to liberal democratic capitalism, particularly the capitalism part, is insane um, because liberal democratic capitalism is not only the most successful anti-poverty program in human history, it's the only successful anti-poverty program in human history on a macro scale. And, and I, I figured it'd be better to argue with them on their terms since I was trying to persuade them. And I figured I could hold conservative readers along because, uh, they agreed with the, the bottom lines on a lot of this stuff. And then, and then at the very end, you sort of bring God back in, in a little bit. Remind me how that happens. Yeah. So part of it, I, I, I argue is that the, one of the worst things that happened to the West is the loss of sense of God fearingness. Um, because the role of being of, of the idea of fearing God is basically, you know, there's this hallmark card definition of character that says good character is what you do when nobody's watching. And when you had the idea that God was always watching you, it, it didn't always improve people's behavior. There were still evil people and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, at on, a, on at scale, I think it's one of the things that drove people that drives people to do the right thing. And when you lose that sense that God is out there, that God is this independent moral yardstick that um, and judge. I'm not trying to depersonalize God or anything, but you know that uh, you lose something, you start turning inward. And you start sort of uh, divinizing yourself, and I think that's what romanticism ultimately is: is the divinization of your of the self. Is is saying I am my own god, I am my own priest, I take my own counsel for right, right and wrong. And I was thinking about this in the context I had Charlie Cook on the podcast recently, talking about the the mass shooting stuff, and it dawned on me afterwards that you know from antiquity forward it's a you know this very common thing that people want you know the search for glory is a huge thing in human history and to have your name you know as they would say in the wire your name ring out um is something that you can go back to ancient greeks ancient rome you know all you know and the mass shooting thing to the extent that these people aren't psychotic i think in some part derives from a pagan worldview that says God's not watching me. All that matters is that history remember me. Uh, mm -hmm. Every that yeah. people know my name, that I make a mark, and it doesn't matter whether it's a mark for good or evil. It just it has to be awesome in the sort of ancient sense. Uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um so so I, I I ask because as I've said, I'm thinking about my own book on progressivism here and I'm uh, thinking I'm trying to wrap my head around how to approach it. And and your approach of bracketing God is interesting. And I think I can't 
You can't do because that of the you. virtue that yeah, I can't do that because the book I've already written where it's it's all about God. And as you said, so many of our political disagreements are just kind of masks for religious disagreements. And I I, I think I might have to be very overt about that as I talk about this stuff. Um, so I just kind of want to hear you talk out loud about uh, the choice you made there. What's been the reception? Do you feel that people have accepted your argument as you've tried to argue on their terms and have been persuaded by it? Or yeah, how's it how's it been received? Not too well. I mean, um, I mean, I read it and I loved it, but I'm I'm like you know you're preaching to the choir yeah, with me. Right, so, <laughs> right. and um, I, I think uh, there were some people on the sort of Christianity right who just did not that the that they didn't like the God's not in the book part of it they couldn't get past it um some make a very f entirely intellectually legitimate point that you can't talk about the rise of liberal democratic capitalism without telling the story of uh you know the judeo-christian heritage and and all that and i think that's to a certain extent true i got into it in, in, at the margins um but i had to start the story somewhere and i decided to start it 250,000 years ago rather than 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago. And um, and I think that in some ways the book was a little, it, 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 it suffered, I mean, it did well, don't get me wrong, um, uh, but it suffered from the fact that, it was interesting talk, it was like, that was the last time I did a lot of right-wing talk radio. Um, I'm sort of persona non grata there now. I used to do an enormous amount. And, um, and it was, it was really interesting how the, the right wing guys would all be like, they would read the subtitle which is something like how, how populism, nationalism, socialism and identity politics are ruining the country or whatever. I don't like the title of the book or the subtitle, but, um, and, uh, and they'd be with me on the identity politics. They'd be with me on the social, what's wrong with nationalism, you know? And then. Uh, the NPR types would be like, totally get you on the nationalism. What's wrong with identity politics? And um, <laughs> uh, and I think it sort of suffered a little bit from not having a natural home. And it was one of the reasons why I became more committed to the remnant kind of thing, because mm -hmm. uh, yeah. it's sort of where I am. But, you know, in the time we have left, you know, like, like, uh, I, I feel now I feel guilty of hijacking my own podcast. When, I don't know. I'm the one who turned it around and, and asked you. I've been, I've been wanting to ask these questions to you for a long time. Well, we so. should have. Let's just go grab a beer, or coffee, or whatever, and, and work it through. Um, uh, but you know, at the end, you have this sort of note to pastors kind of thing. Um, uh, um, for a for someone who's in charge of, of instructing the Christian faith or, or, or a shepherd guiding a shepherd, a shepherd guiding his flock kind of thing or her flock, you know, what is, what is, what is it that you want them to take away from the book? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do I have mean, five pages at the end addressed directly to pastors. And I did that because I felt that pastors do have a role in this that I think many are going to be very uncomfortable with and want to deny they have a role at all in this. And I'm talking mostly about white pastors because black pastors have embraced their role in their community lives and political lives for, for generations. That's not been a really a question in the black church. But my, I guess, conviction is that uh, churches are inherently political. There are civic associations in addition to being an embassy of the kingdom of God. And pastors shape the lives of their people and the way their people think about all kinds of things. Unfortunately, 
the individualism of American culture is now definitely a part of American evangelicalism as well. So many pastors, when they preach sermons, they preach what we should do in our individual lives, which I'm all for. We should do things in our individual lives. But I think the Bible actually has more implications than that. The Bible has implications for how we relate in our families, our communities, and yes, our tribes and our nations. And that's the part of the Bible I think is often left out in evangelical sermons. Uh, I think that um, pastors should recognize that, the role they play in teaching about what our lives should look like in the social, cultural, and political spaces, not just our individual and family lives. I don't mean that they ought to be more partisan or more overtly political in the sense of endorsing candidates or you know just one more pro-life Sunday kind of thing. We have enough of that. What I'm saying is the teaching has to be more full-blooded and full-orbed, teaching us how to be full humans. Mm-hmm. I think the Bible speaks to that. I think the Bible is not addressed to individuals so much as it's addressed to a people uh, called out for God. And, uh, and Americans are pretty malformed in this respect. And so that's why I, I, I ended the way I did. That was a very abstract answer. What do I want pastors to take away from this? I think that you have a role. I think you need to embrace the role. I think you need to understand a bit more of, of the particulars of American culture and society in this moment and the dangers we face and the way people have hijacked and misused Christian rhetoric and norms and symbols for a political agenda that I think is increasingly non-Christian, even anti-Christian. Um, I probably should have saved that for the very last question, but it reminded me of a question I didn't want to ask you. Um, um, so this is a point that Rich Lowry has made a few times, I'm sure it's in his book, I can't remember, but um, one of the, the, the go-to things for all Christian-informed nationalist movements um, as far as I can tell, is this idea of chosenness. Um, and uh, David Bell actually did a whole book on um, how the French revolutionaries consider themselves to be the new Israel, right? Chosen, right? But, you know, there's a lot of people who don't appreciate how nationalistic the French Revolution actually was, and um, and if you go back and you read the 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 sort of the Christian nationalists, there's a lot about chosenness. We are the chosen nation, providential nation, yada yada yada. This is my own ignorance asking this question. Um, what is the? I mean, let me put it this way: I always thought that part of the point of Christianity was that Christianity universalized a lot of the moral underpinnings. I mean, for, for put aside the theological differences is that Judaism really was about a specific people, you know, I mean, the Hebrews, you know, the 12 tribes, whatever, you know, the Israelites, Christianity was like, no, no, we're all human beings. We're all the children of God. It was much more of a universalized, you know, it was sort of taking a lot of what Judaism was and scaling it for humanity writ large. So why is this such an appealing concept in Christian theology to talk about a chosen nation when I thought the whole point was to move beyond the concept of a chosen nation? Right. So this is a subject that makes my head explode. I, I could talk on this for a long time, and it makes me really worked up. Uh, theologically, there's not much of an argument there. Like, we all know America's not a chosen nation. But look at the Old Testament. 
you're right, it's about uh, one particular people, but there's a few passages in like Isaiah where it talks about Israel's global mission to be a model and example to the nations, to bring the light of God to all people. The nations will come to Zion and all that. And that's, <clears throat> there's almost an irresistible emotional appeal there that we are chosen to bring the message to the world. Uh, so it's both particular and it's universal. And that meshes so well with America's self-understanding as the exemplar of liberty and equality. And it's just this, this fit between that Christian sense of chosenness or the or Old Testament sense of chosenness and a global mission to be an example for all. City on a hill, right? John Winthrop's sermon. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any theology here at all, but it's been part of American history forever. Uh, not just Winthrop, but I, I, Second Chronicles 7.14, blessed is there. No. Uh, if my people who are called by my name repent and turn, I will bless their land. And uh, Psalm 33.12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Americans have been using that and applying it to America since at least the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It's not just it's not just recent history. Reagan made it more popular, and uh, it drives me absolutely crazy whenever I see that because it's just not biblically defensible at all, and it can lead to some very dangerous national self righteousness. If you if you think we are the nation whose God is the Lord, um, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, and we have liberty. Therefore, the Spirit of the Lord is here, and we are the blessed nation, and God has blessed America, and we are uh, the righteous chosen nation to bring the gospel of liberty to all the earth. You can imagine what kind of dangers that can lead to um, and has led to in American history. We, 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 we become blind to our own sins, be convinced of our righteousness and our, and our mission. Um, and it can be uh, the, the mask that some of the worst episodes of American history wears mm -hmm. to pretend to a, a form of righteousness. Um, there's my sermon. I, I could talk on this for a lot longer. But uh, yeah, you picked a good one for me to get worked up about. Um, yeah. So one of the things I keep thinking about, and I'm just curious what your opinion is on this, I remember an interview with um, his name is fled out of my head, but the creator of Deadwood. Did you ever watch Deadwood? I did not. Okay, so Deadwood takes place in the. It's a story about Deadwood, South Dakota, um, on the eve of statehood, essentially, and it's a west. It's great western. If if you're turned off by f bombs and 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 bad language, do not watch it. Uh, but it's really one of the best uh, TV shows, I think, of the last 20 years. And this is when your producer should insert a lot of bleeps into my talk <laughs> <laughs> as if I was just letting this around. And uh, right. the uh, and it's interesting. They don't speak an iambic pentameter in it, but it's kind of musically like it. And there's a lot of biblical references. And I remember reading an interview or at least a piece a long time ago explaining this. And the answer was in part that Back in those days, most people, particularly in the frontier, weren't that educated. The one thing everybody had read was the King James Bible. And the cadences of the King James Bible kind of informed how people talked. And the the idioms and metaphors of the Bible informed people how they talk. And I sometimes think, like, like it was interesting, there were a few years there where everybody was uh, um, using language from game of thrones and then a few years before that I remember sunny bunch used to go crazy about how telling millennials read another friggin book because all they could do was talk about harry and harry potter metaphors <laughs> and I, I, it'd be interesting to know just like how much of american history particularly christian nationalism is was never intended to be all that theological but the linguistic power of the bible was so dominant that it was really the only way to sort of communicate to people in a literary metaphorical way that everybody would have access to as part of the, the, the mono or popular culture. 
and that's part of Rich's argument when in his chapter about the the Bible is its influence in shaping American letters, American culture, just the landscape of American thought. Sometimes people make a big deal of how much past presidents quoted the Bible. Were they going to quote the Quran? I mean, like this was the thing that everybody read. And if you were a president trying to speak to all Americans who are divided by region and race and class and, and geography, the Bible is one of the few common reference points clear up until, again, the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the presidents would appeal to it just as a sense of creating a sense of common commonality uh, and communicating clearly. And you're right. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that they intended it as a theological argument. Uh, they were using it for their political program. I don't want to say that they weren't religiously devout. I think many of them were. Uh, but you have to recognize there's, there's both and going on here. There's some just real Christianity, and there's a lot of borrowing Christian language for a political program, and that's Christian nationalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, because George W. Bush did a lot of this, right? And there was actually a whole 60 Minutes piece, which was so overwrought, where they were talking about the, essentially the dog whistles in President Bush's rhetoric, and that these hidden biblical phrases were a secret signal to Christians you know, Christian fundamentalists or evangelicals or Christian nationalists. And this was all so sinister. And it was basically, you know, shining city on a hill stuff. Now, obviously, there are going to be passionate, sincere Christians who are actually going to get the reference. But there are going to be other people who just think it's nice phraseology. It doesn't mean it's necessarily this sinister, you know, uh, you know, it's not Arafat saying talking and Rick and saying one thing and in English saying another thing or whatever. It's just, it's part of American rhetoric. Um, a couple of years ago, Mike Pence uh, said something in ending a speech where he's like, you were going to fight the good fight and run the good race for the sake of old glory. It was something to that effect. Mm-hmm. You remember this? Yeah. And it, he was mixing a biblical allusion with a clear American allusion. I don't, you know, and people like their hair was on fire. Like this was the worst thing ever. This is theocracy. Look, I'm not a fan of it. I don't think it's helpful. But it's 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 a fairly harmless bit of rhetoric that has a long tradition in American uh, speeches. Yeah. So on, on the on the on the Lowry point, um, what is your answer to that? I mean, um, um, I mean, my my own view of Rich's argument is that he partly just uses patriotism and nationalism interchangeably, which he argued and it. And linguistically, he that's a perfectly defensible position. But I think in the American context, they're different words and they point to different things. And he also, you know, he does this thing that I think Hazoni does a version of, that most of the nationalists do a version of, which is, well, Hazoni basically says anything bad is no longer nationalism. Um, what Rich does is say, I'm only defending the good nationalisms. And... Um, I get it, but like, I'm, I'm willing to defend the good forms of a lot of things, you know, um, uh, the, the trick is, 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 is figuring out what the logic of the principle is and where it leads you. And, um, so, but what is, what is your response to the, the, you know, there's a long tradition of existence for the, for Christian language and Christian concepts in American culture. Yeah, the history is true, uh, and even the present reality in some senses is still there in some corners of America. 
but we're not the same people we were. Culture has changed, America has changed. And I think it's, we just simply can't go back to the way things were, uh, again, because of some of the changes in demographic realities. Rich has got this thing in his book about um, jazz. He, he, he wants to defend the idea that American culture is not definitionally white. So he says, hey, jazz is an example of a multiracial uh, element to our country because white people didn't invent jazz. I think Rich is entirely correct about that. But tell me how that matches with his insistence that we need to preserve the cultural nation, which is exactly what he says nationalism is, preserve the cultural nation. If we had all been nationalists in 1900, what would have our attitude been towards the rise of jazz? We would have hated it. And by the way, white critics did hate jazz. They said this was un-American voodoo music from the jungles of Africa, right? Horribly racist stuff. Um, so if we want to be welcoming to the possibility of change, we can't be nationalists. But if we're going to be nationalists, we have to reject the possibility of cultural change. These things can't go together. You, you know, do you want to be a nationalist and live in a world with no jazz? No, I don't want to live in that world. I'd rather live in a world where we acknowledge that America's going to change and it's going to be good. It's going to give us things like jazz and, and, and American cuisine, which is changing constantly. Uh, so there's a reality of, a, of Christianity in American history. But America's changed. We can't go back. Genie's out of the bottle. It's fine for American Christians to want to preserve their faith, practice their faith, bring their faith in public square, but let's not pretend that we can reestablish Christian dominance in American politics the way it was pre-1950 or, or whenever. T pick your point. Uh, that ship has sailed, and all of our defensive efforts to recreate that is deeply inhospitable and even illiberal towards everyone else in America who doesn't want to be that. Uh, it... it uh, uh, it misunderstands what American identity is today. And the, the, the solution tries to impose on America is actually now contravening the American creed. And that is the thing that deeply worries me about Christian nationalism. All right. I have many responses to that, but we were running long. I basically agree with you. I think there's a real analog to socialism and the sort of statism thing where yeah. you want to have a Luddite freezing of technology and innovation at this point. So like, before the creation of antibiotics or, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, should we have frozen everything right before COVID vaccines? And, um, and I think the same thing applies to culture because culture and economics in many ways are both innovative, iterative processes. Um, yeah, free, free culture. That's the doctrine here. Free culture. All right, Paul Miller, thank you so much for doing this. Obviously we will have you back because you're going to be doing a trilogy. Um, but we'll probably have you on long before the next installment comes out. The book is The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. Um, Paul Miller, thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for having me back. Okay, so uh, Professor Miller has, has left the studio, and um, uh, as you can tell, uh, I kind of geek out on this stuff, perhaps a bit too much for some listeners. Um, I do feel bad for having, feeling like I kind of, uh, even though it's my microphone, stole it from him a little bit. Um, I wasn't kidding about how his bio um, is kind of ridiculous. Uh, this is the about the author thing. Uh, Paul D. Miller, PhD, Georgetown, is professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Forest Service and co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration. He spent a decade in public service as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff, an intelligence analyst for the CIA, and a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. 
and then he's written in a bunch of places. So, you know, he knows about some stuff. Um, and, uh, and I hope, you know, I was clear enough that I really do love and admire Rich, even though we have profound disagreements and, um, um, and I, I hope I sounded respectful, but if I didn't, I figured I would just reiterate that. Um, and other than that, uh, we got a bunch of shows in the can, um, cause I'm sort of, I've disappeared a little bit, but you won't notice that in your podcast feed because, uh, we are nothing if not obedient servants to remnant listeners. So, uh, please become, please, please, if you can, if you can afford it, join the dispatch community and become a member. Um, you know, it, it's, I just can't tell you how important it is to us, how important it is to this podcast. Um, and, um, I will, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll do a more polished pitch to you the next time, but if you're on the fence, uh, you know, lean over, take the leap. Um, I think you'll be happy that you did. And, uh, with that, I'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.